Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Tuesday evening where we continue to reflect into the great ancient Christian thinkers and how we can apply them today. And I'm really excited about this evening's program, uh, this fourth Tuesday now, where we have the opportunity to reflect into St. Augustine because, uh, well, my dear listeners, we... uh, we have a relationship with a God who is providential, huh? I mean, uh, what was it? September 30th, we talked about St. Jerome, and it just happened to be his feast day. Uh, well, here we are, uh, something that we planned a few weeks ago to talk about the city of God, and it happens to fall on Election Day. So uh, with that, we're going to use uh, God's infinite providence to help guide and steer our discussion. And it is Tuesday, so that means I have John O'Hare with me. So, John, great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here, Joe. I love when God does this. (laughs) (laughs) And what do we mean to say when we talk about providence? Well, God is sovereign. He, He holds all things in his hands. You know, there's no such thing as coincidence, but only God incident. God doesn't, you know, John, roll the dice. We must see all things in light of, of God's sovereign love. And so because of that, we really do turn our attention uh, to City of God and take that so as to uh, help us better understand what a day like today is all about. You know, Election Day, uh, November 4th, Year of Our Lord, 2014. So uh, again, we are all about applying the Church Father's to our everyday life, and certainly this will provide the opportunity for us this evening. I just really want to jump right into this, uh, John. Our Emeritus Pope, in his Wednesday audiences on the Church Fathers, he just has a beautiful, succinct kind of context uh, to to really get our night going as it relates to the City of God. And, And he says this, and he's speaking to now when it was written and the occasion Uh, when it was written. It really helps us understand what the city of God is all about. So he says this, The occasion of these 22 books was the sack of Rome by the Goths in 410. Numerous pagans still alive and also many Christians said, Rome has fallen. The Christian God and the apostles can now no longer protect the city. While the pagan divinities were present, Rome was the great capital. And no one could have imagined that it would fall into enemy hands. Now, with the Christian God, this great city no longer seems safe. Therefore, the God of the Christians did not protect. He could not be the God to whom to entrust oneself. St. Augustine answered this objection, which also touched Christian hearts profoundly with uh, with his impressive work, The City of God explaining what we should and should not expect of God and what the relationship is between the political sphere and the sphere of faith of the church. This book is also today a source for defining clearly between true secularism and the church's competence, the great true hope 
that the faith gives to us. This important book presents the history of humanity governed by divine providence but currently divided by two loves. This is the fundamental plan, its interpretation of history, which is the struggle between two loves, love of self to the point of indifference to God and love of God to the point of indifference to the self. To full freedom from the self for others in the light of God. This, therefore, is perhaps St. Augustine's greatest book and is of lasting importance. I'm reminded, John, of your words, uh, well, as you read them from Jurgens, what, four weeks ago, where you were talking about, you know, if we were staked <laughs> with that ultimatum between choosing between Augustine and all the other church fathers, that we, well, might have to go with Augustine. Uh, that is the kind of figure we are dealing with here, and certainly the city of God is quintessential uh, to understanding St. Augustine. Benedict XVI gave quite an encomium to city of God. Yeah. I was reading Father Groeschel. He says, for every hundred people who have read the confessions, maybe two have read the city of God. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, popularity, what, yeah. When I first read the city of God, <clears throat> I went to the image book. Maybe it was a, a, sh a shortened version, maybe about 350 pages. And then I went to the Penguin edition, a thousand pages. So it, it is quite a deal. <laughs> now, let's just take a look at how he began writing it. Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome in 410. Shock? Well, not really. We have been discussing for the past numerous uh, fathers of the church, Rome was on the decline. Mm -hmm. Romans knew it, and um, Rome was not paying its soldiers. Many of these soldiers were kind of barbarians. Anyway, okay, I don't want to get involved in too much of that. No, no, I, now, I, I hear you, though. I hear you, and it's important. <laughs> now, uh, a man named uh, Marcellinus was assigned to North Africa, and he knew Augustine, and he was a Christian. And he, re he had a conversation with a man named Valusianus, who said, you know, the reason the, the, we, we got sacked is because of your Christian religion. It's really sapped what Rome mm -hmm. used to be about when we were on top of the world. And uh, Marcellinus wrote to Augustine and said, look at this. How can we answer this guy? So Augustine took quill in hand and at the age of 59 began this book and at the age of 72, four years before his death, finished it. So mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. But one other thing about Augustine is mankind has this original sin, and it is uh, something he has to live with. And there is a struggle going on between good and evil in men and in their society. Therefore, the city of God deals with this. You know, we have to live in society, yet we have this uh, problem we men, mm -hmm. groups, have to live with. Yeah, I mean, this, this line of his... Uh and this is one of his great lines, this struggle between two loves, love of self to the point of indifference to God, right. and love of God to the point of indifference to self. And what does this remind us of? We must remember, John, we had talked about that great quote from John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio, and I may have cited paragraph eight in the past, but it's actually paragraph six where he says, you know, history is not a progression of events towards what is better, but an event of freedom. The next line he quotes this piece from St. Augustine. He goes on to say <laughs> that when you put this in the context of, you know, love of God and love of man, we can begin to appreciate this event of freedom. And so, yeah, this is uh, very important. You know, John, what St. Augustine highlights for us in the city of God is essentially, you know, who or what are we putting our hope in? Are we putting our hope in a political party? 
or maybe a political pundit, or are we putting our hope in God? You know, I have met a lot of people today who they will listen to, you know, maybe a Sean Hannity or a Lars Larson and those kind of guys, and they might have some good things to say, but whatever they say is the end game, right? Whatever they say is, is the sum total. It doesn't point towards the greater truth. And I think when you start talking about this, uh, we have to be able to draw back and be mindful of the fact that, you know, we need to put our hope in God. And this is really what drives St. Augustine's The City of God. Again, the contention was the political structure of Rome has failed us. Uh, therefore, God has failed us. No, no. <laughs> you, you render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but unto God what belongs to God. And that's so important. Augustine has a fantastic memory for political events, mm. and he, this goes through in the first part of it. And uh, he goes through war after incident after war of how the gods of Rome failed. Mm-hmm. I remember one incident in which, um, remember, the, the main complaint was that the Christian God, they wanted us to be meek, and they want us to be forgiving. Well, mm-hmm. you can't have a strong state if you're going to be meek and forgiving. Yes. And yes. he talks about... Um, Rome was founded by Aeneas. Wait a minute. Aeneas was the product of adultery between Anchises and Venus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, you have all of this stuff going on, which, of course, is anti-Christian. And uh, so you have these sins going on that the very founding of of the great society, and and look, Christianity is giving you a little bit something different, a little bit more wholesome, Mm -hmm. and probably a little bit more accurate. You mentioned political parties. Augustine did not have any acquaintance Mm. with democracy or political parties. Mm. But here in the United States, we do, Mm -hmm. and we have to. And this was brought out at our very beginning in the 1790s. It was clear, you're not going to get anything done unless you belong to a party. So, I mean, we have to live with that. Again, we have to, you know, be as you know, as pure as we can in this rare, real, really kind of complicated situation. Yeah, and as you talk about that, John, I want to come back to that in a bit, but I want to um, make some points before we get there, because certainly this is very important and, and really lies at the heart of this evening's radio program. As I was praying and reflecting upon the City of God, you know, the Election Day, certainly I was, I was moving towards Matthew 22, uh, verse 21. And of course, that is the passage I just mentioned to you. But I, I want to go ahead and, and read this. You know, what is going on here in Matthew 22, verse 21? And so I'm actually going to read, let's see here, I'll start with Matthew 22, 15. Uh, this is the question about paying taxes, okay? For context here, Christ has entered into Jerusalem back in the beginning of chapter 21. And what? I mean, if you were to go through uh, chapter 21 up to chapter 22, verse 21, you know, Christ is cleansing the temple, uh, his authority is questioned, and then you have a set of parables where he's, he's challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the, this question, uh, the Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk, and they sent their disciples to, to him along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and care for no man, for you do not regard the position of men. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the money for the tax. And they brought him a coin, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So at one level, 
you know, Jesus is playing certainly on the word likeness, which uh, in the Greek literally renders image. You know, Caesar's coins could be given back to him in taxes without religious compromise. After all, he minted the coins with his own image and they were his rightful property. More importantly, and I think this is so important for us, John, that everyone has the duty of giving himself created in his image back to God. So Jesus implies that the higher duty is incumbent even upon Caesar. So in the end, Jesus affirms the propriety of fulfilling civil duties while emphasizing our primary duty of serving God who is truth. And that's such an important point. And the Jews disliked Caesar for obvious reasons. He was their ruler, and they wanted to be their own rulers. Mm -hmm. Yet Jesus said, render unto Caesar the taxes that are due him. Mm -hmm. That's a hard saying for Jews, Mm -hmm. but they really didn't have any choice. Mm -mm. And it kind of reminds me of how many times have we lived under politicians that we weren't particularly fond of. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do about this? Mm-hmm. Well, you can vote to have them. Tr- you know, there's many legitimate things you can do, but what you have to do is, in a loving way, get across, follow the law, and then try to make what change you can. And Paul said this in his epistles, that we have to you know, get along with Caesar. Yeah, and as you're talking there, John, we have to be mindful of something here. As we are putting our hope in God, this isn't a passive thing. God calls us to be actively engaged in in the policy-making process, uh, make a difference where we can. You know, uh, this book that I was reading today by Archbishop Charles Chaput, Render Unto Caesar, Serving the Nation by Living (laughs) Our Catholic Beliefs in Political Life. Faith needs to inform, inform our politics, not our politics forming and informing our faith. Yes. We have to be sure that we have one before the other. Lest, John, we have uh, the, the tail wagging the dog. It's interesting, as I was reading that passage from the Gospel of Matthew, earlier in that chapter, he poses them the question, what do you think? He's asking them their opinion. Now, we often hear today, well, what is your opinion? And we think this is a good thing. But what does Jesus teach us? He says, what do you think? And then he just doesn't say, okay, tell me what you think. He then offers them a parable. What was the parable? The parable of the two sons. The parable to say what you mean and mean what you say. The parable that establishes appearance versus reality. Okay? So he says, look at this objective moral standard. And allow that to form your understanding of me. Allow that to form your opinion, what you think of me, what you think of the nature of truth itself. So he says, what do you think to get them thinking critically about the nature of truth, about who he is, about his mission and the kingdom of God? He just doesn't say, what do you think? And then, yeah, I'll listen to you arbitrarily Mm -hmm. and, and anything goes. No, it's much more than that. He says, what do you think? so as to get the Pharisees and the Sadducees thinking more critically, the Herodians, okay? Uh, And that's very important because when you draw back and you put this within the context of the American political structure and a day like today, elections, our opinion is the gospel. And we all have to be humble and say, okay, what is truth? What is the truth in this proposition or that proposition? Uh, What does this politician stand for and that politician stand for? Uh, Where is truth? We have to be able to ask that question. 
and allow truth itself to form again and inform our vote. It's just so important. You know, Shapu makes the point, in the past, speaking to American past, we would turn to God. And in the present, God is the problem. And so it's just not Christians, but the practicing Christians that has evoked this, um, uh, this Christian phobia. And this is what we are made to overcome today, John. I mean, there is a, a hard brand of what this looks like in the school of atheism, where a, a Dawkins says something like this, you know, religion in practice is one of the greatest evils comparable to smallpox, but even harder to eradicate. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is contempt, which is very hypocritical, John. And we've noted this in the past because ultimately um, you are asserting an imposition, a one that condemns an imposition. You say to me, or uh, I say to you, stop pontificating. But in the very statement of saying stop pontificating, we are doing what? We are pontificating, right? You say to me, there's no such thing as absolute truth. You are establishing an absolute truth that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Okay, in contempt, there is weakness. And the weakness is the inability and unwillingness to engage in a very real dialogue. And if there is anything that the political structure needs today, is a real dialogue. Mindful, of course, John, of what dialogue means. Dialogos, where two are applying logic to discover a truth. And so when you remove God from, uh, from society and from culture, do you think that's going to impact uh, politics and, and policy and law? Of course it is. And then you have that softer brand, John, uh, which is defined by pluralism. You know, a pluralistic society cannot afford a dominant idea of God. So it says this, religion is too diverse. To avoid warfare, rivalry, let us remove it from the public square. Impossible. So, yeah, yeah. But see, this is the way we think today. And this is why it's so important for us to talk about this kind of thing on a day like this in light of City of God, because of the way in which St. Augustine really helps us understand how important faith is and how that moves and shapes history, uh, and how we are called not to be passive on the sidelines, but actively engaged. You cannot have a naked public square. What you will have is a public square which throws essentially morality out, and it is replaced by pleasures that are popular right now, trends that are popular right now, and this is true, and we live in a culture which is not what it used to be in the 50s. Mm. Let me just blab for a little bit. Back in the 1930s, Massachusetts was going to pass a uh, kind of like a gambling law. I'm not quite, a, I, I'm a little bit vague. I've read this a long time ago. Uh, kind of like a lottery sort of thing. Sure. And uh, it was very popular, and the legislature was on the verge of passing it when the bishop of uh, Boston, who was before Cardinal Cushing, I forget his name, said, no, no, we can't do this, that bill died. Mm -hmm. Amazing what that bishop could do. Yes, that yes. could not happen today. Mm. And I'm not, I don't know if I want our bishops coming around telling us what to do, but I mean, that is an example of how things have slipped away. Mm -hmm. Augustine mentioned the parable of the wheat and the tares, mm. and we have mm -hmm. both of those in our society. Mm -hmm. And in the city of man, they're here. In fact, the church militant that we belong to has sinners in it. 
and he wanted that to be, you know, sinners are part of our church. Therefore, the church is not really part of the city of God yet. We're mm-hmm. church militant. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we'll be the church triumphant. Yeah. But we have our sinners, and we have to, you know, do our Christian thing with that. Yeah, we do. And of course, we have to always be mindful of the words of the great G.K. Chesterton. Uh, when he was asked, what's wrong with the world? His response is, I am. I am. And, and it's always uh, so important to be mindful of that each and every day, each and every minute, that we are sinners um, and in light of our sinfulness, we are in need of Christ. And because we are in need of Christ, uh, we are in need of truth. We are in need of his love that gives life. And we need to form ourselves, our, we need to form our conscience in this, this truth so that when we go to vote, John, when we go to the election booths and, and to those precincts, that we are mindful of that right uh, versus wrong. And it's just so important to be present to that. So, yeah, I mean, we are made to call, uh, to overcome, rather, this uh, so-called American genius, John, to put aside our private obsessions, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. This whole idea of privatizing religion and privatizing faith, uh, it's really one of the tools of the adversary. It's really one of the tools of, of the devil, because when you think about it, what is faith? Faith is that response in God. You're in God, but for other. And you're making a difference, just not in how we love the poorest of the poor, but we are also making a difference in how law reflects the love of God and that truth which God embodies uh, and certainly is revealed in, in yeah. the Son incarnate. So important. Um, that you, you can never separate this. You can never say uh, one is autonomous from the other. One does not have a place uh, with the other. And this is at the heart of our country, John. This is at the heart of the Charter's um, for freedom. I mean, the Declaration of Independence, religious truth formed and framed these documents. Uh, Religious convictions really framed their reasoning. And we have to be mindful uh, as we talk about uh, what a day like today is all about. I mean, I say charters of freedom. I mean, St. Augustine, that lies at the heart of the city of God. What is freedom? Freedom is not a license to do whatever we want to do, but uh, a means to do what we ought. You know, freedom Mm -hmm. must always be seen in light of the truth of Jesus Christ. Um, And so, yeah, it's one thing to put stickers on our chest. I see you've got yours. And, And why do we do that? We do that because we are made to remember of the sacrifices of all of the men and women that have been made so as to have the freedom that we have to go to the voting booth. Uh, but at this point, John, we are using our freedom to vote for freedom. That's where we're at in 2014. And so uh, we need to remember what have we been talking about for the last eight months? Our roots, right, John? We need to remember where we come from uh, so as to best understand who we are and where we're going. Going to our precinct, going to the voting booth, uh, mindful of everything that we're talking about is essential. It's just, it's just not enough to vote and say, well, I voted today. Voting isn't a virtue. Right? No. Voting is necessary, no. but I mean, the, the virtue is found in what we stand for. I mean, do we stand for truth? Pilate asks, asks the question, what is truth? Are we by Christ's side? And bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that truth is that objective moral standard that he sets up in the gospel. He gives a long list of things we should do and things we should not do. You know, and Paul certainly draws us out. 
Remember, the most fundamental vocation of any Christian church is to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we profess with our lives and how we vote uh, with our answer, huh? That is true. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and so on. Mm. There's no mention of God in the Constitution, which is as it should be, because the Constitution is civil law. The Declaration of Independence was the deeper meaning that led to that Constitution. Amen. Um, the First Amendment does not have wall of separation in it. It mm-hmm. simply means that you cannot establish a church. Mm-hmm. And no one is trying to, unless you talk about some sort of secular, cannot mention this in all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. The church has been through bad times before. Think about the Reformation, and the Jesuits came along, and they established some great colleges, pretty much took over the educational system of Europe, and did a wonderful job. What happened to those colleges? Mm. A lot of what's coming out of our elite colleges is the religion of atheism, mm-hmm. and that is filtering into our media, our culture, our politics, and... Um, and it's being institutionalized and it's in being, law. Right, yes, it, it mm-hmm. is. And so that is why today is so important, mm-hmm. that uh, law in of itself is always to bear witness to truth. John, uh, if I may, I would like to close with a, uh, a bit of an extended quote from Archbishop Chaput. I had mentioned that book, Rendering to Caesar, Serving the Nation by Living Our Catholic Beliefs and Political Life. I wanted to make sure I got this in, and this will kind of be our our closing challenge, if you will. He says this, If our nation has changed from the land of opportunity to the land of private appetites over the last few decades, one of the reasons is this. We haven't lived what we say we believe. Homelessness, poverty, abortion, the neglect of the elderly, these are brazenly real problems in contemporary America. They won't go away by blaming the religious right, smearing Christians, believers as extremists, or kicking religion out of the public discussion. That's the language of a power grab by people alienated from our country's religious roots. He continues, Our problems can only be solved by people of character, who actively and without apology take their beliefs into public debates. That includes Catholics. We need to be stronger in our public witness, not weaker. Whether America is really 80% or 50% or even 10% Christian, it doesn't matter. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and that the Catholic Church is who she says she is, then we need to start living like it. If we really believe that the gospel is true, we need to embody it in our private lives and our public choices. Amen to that, John. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.